reading from uh, Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you. For changing us from the inside out. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the promised Holy Spirit. And as we look to your word this morning, may it saturate our hearts in these days ahead. Pray that it would take deep roots. And may the word of the Lord prevail during our days. Change us by your word. 
We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, O Lord, and that we would hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus changes everything. True or false? Oh, I got a quick true. That's good. Jesus changes everything. I want you to think about that this morning. Do you believe that Jesus changes everything? What do you have to base your answer on? Anything about your own life that's changed as a result of Jesus abiding in you through his promised Holy Spirit? Are you living any differently as a result of Jesus? You know, there's a hymn that we sing, What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since what? Since Jesus came into my heart, I have light in my soul, for which long I have sought, since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, it says, floods of joy or my soul, like the sea billows roll, since Jesus came into my heart. I believe Jesus changes everything. In fact, just a cursory look at the scriptures, we see that Jesus does, in fact, change everything, everyone. You remember that man named Joseph in the New Testament? And he was about to make a decision to divorce his wife. An angel shows up on the scene and explains to him the situation explains to him to go ahead and take Mary. The angel shows up to Mary. And Mary is listening and Mary is wondering. And her life, his life, not only their individual lives changed, but did not their marriage change as a result of Jesus being their child? You think about people in the scriptures. You think about people that Jesus encountered. What about when he came on the scene? What about those shepherds who were just tending their flocks? And all of a sudden these angels show up. Glory to God in the highest. And they give him the news that today in the city of Bethlehem a Savior has been born to you. I don't know that they shepherded their flocks the same way after that day. What about King Herod? When he found out there was another king in town, do you think that changed Herod at all? I do. The scripture says it does, in fact. He made some decisions, in fact, to try and make sure that he was still going to be king. And on and on we go throughout the scriptures and we see John the Baptist. His life was changed. His whole life was set apart to lead the way for the one yet to come, Jesus. Peter, James, and John. How about Matthew, the tax collector? Jesus changed his life a little bit? Come follow me. He gets up from his tax collecting booth and follows Jesus. How about the rich young ruler? 
And on the surface you might say, no, he didn't change him. But a closer look at the story, yes, he did change him. Because that rich young ruler was confronted with truth, wasn't he? One thing you lack. That woman caught in adultery. The woman at the well. The blind man from birth. The crippled man at the pool of Bethsaida. How about the wedding at Cana? Do you think the wedding guests were changed as a result of Jesus showing up at that party that day? How about the widow of Nain? Funeral service going on and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, touches her child. Her child is raised up and given back to her. Jesus change anything for her? How about Zebedee? Remember Zebedee? He had a couple sons that worked with him in the fishing industry. And when Jesus comes on the scene, at the end of Luke 5, verse 10, 11, it says that when they had caught all these fish, they pulled them up to shore and they left their nets. They left their business and they followed Jesus. How do you think? Do you think that changed Zebedee at all? He had some sons who had been working alongside of him. How about Nicodemus? Do you think his life changed as a result of that night conversation? How about the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the scribes? Jesus, did Jesus change some things for them? Stephen? Philip? Or what about the Apostle Paul, the one we're reading about? Acts 9, blinded on his way to Damascus, on his way to persecute have letters to take some, some of these Christians and put them away. And the Lord gets his attention. The, Jesus changes everything. Paul makes his way to Ephesus here in the text from Antioch. He's in the midst of his third missionary journey now. Paul wields the sword, the word of God... Takes that word of God with him wherever he goes, speaking the name of Jesus. He operates in the Spirit. He's actually led by the Spirit. We've seen evidence of that in his missionary journeys. And he bears on his body the marks of a Savior named Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus still changes everything yet today? I believe he specializes in changing hearts. As we study the first half of Acts 19 this morning, you start to see varying degrees of hearts. I'd like to just talk about four kinds of hearts this morning based on the text. The first one is a receptive heart. Receptive heart. Look at the text. It says it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. That Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And now the men were about twelve, 
in all. Receptive hearts. You know, I think of, when I think of a receptive heart, I'm drawn to just one page back over in Philippi. I was drawn to Lydia. And in chapter 16, verse 14, describes who she is. But then it also says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. There was a sense where the Lord opened her heart and she received these words that were spoken by Paul. She was receptive to hear. Proverbs 23, 26, a familiar proverb. Solomon says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Some children are receptive to that. Some are not. Some fathers are receptive to that idea. There are some fathers who are not. We see here in verses 2, 3, and 4 in the text, this Q&A, right? Paul is asking these questions. There's There's some questions, there's a response. There's clarity and there's a response. Okay, so if we look at this and and we see the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He finds some disciples. Notice the terminology. Most of us, when we read the text, we think of, immediately when we think of a disciple, we think of someone who follows Jesus. He found some disciples. That's what it says. And you get the idea they probably had some kind of initial dialogue, some initial conversation, and there may have been some kind of concern from Paul. So he asks this question. Because I think it's important you ask another question before you receive the question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why does Paul ask that question? That should be the question we asked before. What is it that led him to ask that question? Well, I tend to believe there was probably something in the manner of their conversation that was puzzling to him. And so he's just curious. Here he is. He's coming into Ephesus. He has been to Ephesus, remember, for a brief time at the end of his second missionary journey. He didn't stay long. But he had been there. So now he asks this question to this group of 12. And their answer, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now this can be sort of confusing as we read the text and thinking that here Luke, as he's moved by the Spirit, is writing and he says that Paul found some disciples. Are these men believers? Are they not believers? That's an interesting question to think about as you're reading the text. It's maybe something you were considering as you were reading. I believe in the text, in looking at the text, I believe that Luke perhaps was penning and writing this from the perspective of of Paul at the time. Paul was perhaps assuming these men were disciples. After further review, he comes to find out some things about these men, like right here. We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, what do we know to be true about one who has the Holy Spirit versus one who does not have the Holy Spirit? What do we know about that in the Scripture? Well, there are probably a handful of verses we could look at. But in terms of looking at Romans chapter 8, I'll give you one to, uh, to look at. Romans chapter 8, in verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not... By the way, this is the same Apostle Paul speaking here. 
this letter, Church of Rome. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So here's this group in Ephesus who has not so much as even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Next question from Paul. Into what then were you baptized? And they say into John's baptism. John the Baptist. Now, let's keep in mind here in the text, we're looking in the mid-50s right here. Third missionary journey, okay? Comprised 53 to 56, 52 to 56, somewhere in that frame, okay? So we're in the the, the early to mid-50s. John was beheaded, remember? He lost his life. Late 20s. So we're, so we're looking at about a 25-year window here, give or take, of time between where we're at in Acts 19 and when John left the scene. It's possible in saying that they were baptized into John's baptism, whether or not they actually were in Jerusalem and John actually baptized them, we don't know. Perhaps it was some disciples of John who baptized them. We don't know all of the details. We don't have all of the details before us. But they said they were baptized into John's baptism. And Paul says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. Saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is pointing these men to what John actually taught. What he actually preached. What his baptism was rooted in. And grounded in. If you would turn in, in, in your Bible, turn to Mark's gospel for just a moment. This, this may be helpful. The beginning of Mark's gospel says, in fact, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel in Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Leads us to believe that the gospel, in part, has to do with this work of John the Baptist. John's a part of this. So he says, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. There it is. Okay, That's that's what he did. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. All the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Verse 6 tells us the description of John. Verse 7 then gives us a, a little bit of what he preached. Here's what he preached. Saying, there comes one after me. Who is this one that's going to come after him? Let's make sure we know who this one is. It's Jesus. And John is preaching to the people. There is one who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. And he says, I indeed baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I read that for a particular reason. Because... These men, back here in Acts 19, who said they were baptized into John. I don't want anyone for a moment to believe that John just did an awful job communicating what he was about. Somewhere, somehow along the way, these 12 men 
didn't get a complete picture of the gospel. Would you agree? They were baptized into John. They had some level of understanding. I think they had a lesser understanding than what Apollos did. The Bible actually says that Apollos taught the way of God accurately. The things of God he taught accurately. And Aquila and Priscilla bring him aside to explain to him the ways of God more accurately. I think there's a certain level that Apollos had in terms of understanding and knowledge that these 12 men here in Ephesus that they don't have. I want you to notice verse 5 when they heard this when they heard what? Notice there's something really important here in the text. Paul does not when he, when he finds out that they had not so much as heard the Holy Spirit, you might think to yourself, now would be a great time. If there was ever a time in the scripture, this might be the time to explain, Paul, exactly when the Holy Spirit arrives. They hadn't so much as heard of the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't talk or address or explain necessarily, at least it's not recorded here, he doesn't explain the Holy Spirit. He teaches and preaches Jesus. I think that's an important thing for us. He's teaching about Jesus. He's saying, yes, John's baptism indeed was a baptism of repentance. And John was pointing to one who was going to come after him, whose sandal strap he was not worthy to stoop down and untie. And John said, hey, I baptized you all with water, but there's coming one after me who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John actually used that terminology. That's what John taught. Somewhere along the way, these folks didn't get that memo. I know you've all played that game where you're in a circle and someone starts it. There's a word that's passed along. There's a message that's passed along. And by the time it goes all the way around, it comes back. Oftentimes it's not what it began, not the way it began. Sometimes it's so durable it doesn't even come close to what it began with. Somewhere through those 20, 25 years, the message was lost about the Holy Spirit. But I want you to look at these receptive hearts. Verse 5, it says, when they heard this teaching, when they heard Paul speak about this Jesus, the one John was speaking about. Is it not also possible that in, in being baptized into John's baptism, they heard about one who was coming after John, but they had no idea that it had been fulfilled? And so Paul is saying, hey guys, the one John is pointing to, he has come, it's been fulfilled, and he's preaching and he's teaching about Jesus. And verse 5 is wonderful because it says when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus one of the only passages and maybe the only texts where you see a second baptism. This is a pretty unique text. These people were baptized into John, but they hadn't had this understanding of who Jesus is. Now they have this understanding as Paul has preached to them and taught them who this Jesus is. He's connected John's teaching to the Messiah, to Jesus. 
And I'm sure in his teaching, he not only talked about Jesus, but talked about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and and then what we've read in Acts 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and and the connection and how the Holy Spirit then connects to Jesus. I'm sure it was quite a teaching time. But you know, these guys, they were receptive to hear. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's important we understand. You know, this terminology of baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, baptism in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Right? In Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9 says. Right? We also see in the scripture that baptizing them, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's just, let's just be clear on what the scripture says. Baptizing someone in the name of Jesus. Someone might say, well, they're not baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's understand Colossians 2.9 says that Jesus himself is in the full, he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. <laughs> and they get baptized in the name of Jesus. What happens after that? The text says, when Paul had laid hands on them, this happens at other times. You see, um, in fact, for your, for your own reading and study, it may be helpful to look back at Acts 2, the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It may be helpful to look at Acts chapter 8, when the Spirit was poured out upon those in Samaria. Right? Philip is doing ministry in Samaria, and the people believe. But Peter and John, who are in Jerusalem headquarters, they are called to come down. Right? And they lay hands on the people in Samaria and they are filled then with the Holy Spirit. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 10, we see another amazing phenomena happen. And it's in the household of Cornelius in Caesarea. Right? And as Peter is there and he is preaching the word, the Bible says that as he was pre- preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were present in his home. And they too have shared this same phenomena, speaking in tongues, prophesying. Same kind of deal. Holy Spirit comes upon them. Verse 6, Paul laid hands, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. This looks a lot like those other chapters I talked about. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. And here in Acts 19, we see the reception of of what we might just call um, Old Testament believers. And we see another example of Apostolic representatives, this time Paul. Previous situations, you had Peter in, in Caesarea. Previous situation that, you had Peter and John went down to Samaria. And in Acts 2, in the original outpouring, you had, it was there in Jerusalem headquarters. And so once again, the door of the gospel is being opened up to a group of folks, even, even a dozen what we're told here. There's a dozen. There's 12 of them. About 12. Leads you to believe he's not even quite sure there were 12. <laughs> about 12. I thought that was kind of an interesting statement. There's about 12. What we're reading in the book of Acts are tra- about transition points in the life of the community of believers, the life of the church. As the gospel keeps going, remember Acts 1.8, the gospel is moving where? To the very end of the earth. And as the gospel keeps pressing outward to the very end of the earth, we're going to encounter, and we see right here this encounter in, verse, in chapter 19, there are some who still don't have all the pieces. There are some who still don't know. 
So here the door is open once again. And these men come to know the truth of the gospel. Praise the Lord. Receptive hearts. Hear what this word has to say. They listen for the voice of God. The ministry of the spirit. They act in obedience. And perhaps a question this morning as we look at that first section of the scripture. Is your heart ready and willing to incline to what this word has to say? When you encounter something in the scriptures, are you quick to obey it? Or do you tend to rationalize it or try to wrestle it to the ground to make it say what you want it to say? My prayer is that this church would have receptive hearts to hear from God and his word. To know his truth. And to promptly obey when he speaks. If we keep reading in verses 8 through 10, we see another kind of heart expressed in the text. It says, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I'd like to talk about a different kind of heart. Quite contrary to the one we just spoke of. A receptive heart. I'd like to speak to a hard heart. For just a moment. A hard heart. We have some base, some foundation in the scriptures for this hard heart. If you turn in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, I'll just read a portion of that, parable of the sower. Remember the sower went out to sow, verse 4, Mark 4, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. That's an interesting picture. What's Jesus mean? He tells us what he means. Look down, skip a few verses. Verses 14 and 15. The sower sows the word. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. This is a description of the hard heart. Proverbs 12 verse 2 says, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions... He will condemn. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Some hearts were hardened here in Acts 19, and they did not believe. In contrast to the 12 receptive hearts we just read about, we see some hard hearts develop over time in the synagogue. Hard toward Paul, Hard toward the message of Paul. Hard hearts toward Jesus. I thought you said Jesus changes everything. That's right, he does. His name impacts hearts. Some receive his truths. Others become hardened to the truth. Hardness of heart 
doesn't mean Jesus has failed. It means man has chosen to distance himself from the one who made him, the one who loved him, gave himself for them. It means that man enjoys hanging out in the darkness more so than walking in the light. When confronted with Jesus, there's now some competing allegiance to the way you've always been doing things. Jesus interrupts your own plans. He brought peace, no doubt. He preached peace to those who were far off, the Bible says. But he also divides. We don't like to preach that part. He demands a loyalty and allegiance that many are not willing to give. And over time, what we see in the text, the hard-hearted folks here in the synagogue, They speak evil about the way. The way. What's the way? Those who were following Jesus. Right? The way. Now, we've got to understand something. As Paul is in Ephesus and he's in the synagogue, he's in there for three months. Praise the Lord, he's in there for three months. He hasn't been able to stay for more than a week or two in other places. He got to stay in Ephesus synagogue for three months. And there were some hearts that over time, over that three-month period of time, they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't stand it anymore. And so it got really bad. Things got bad. And they started speaking evil about the way. And so what's Paul do? Paul departs from the synagogue, the text says, and he withdraws the disciples. I tend to believe that the disciples there in the first seven verses were part of that gathering in the synagogue. And he draws them away and perhaps other brothers and sisters who have come to learn and know about the way, about Jesus and the truth of the gospel, they are drawn away from the the gossip and the opposition and the slander, the blasphemy. And the text says then he reasons daily in this school or in this hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, the, the, the name itself means maybe what you think it might, tyrant. And we don't know much at all about this hall of Tyrannus, this school of Tyrannus, other than he was probably some uh, philosopher, some kind of educator at some level. And he taught in the day. Um, tend to believe in, in studying out the text a little bit that, that Tyrannus was, was a teacher during the morning hours and, and, and Paul perhaps rented his hall, his, his building for a period from, let's say, 11 in the morning to about 3 or 4 at night. It's what it seems to be in the afternoon, about a 3 4 hour segment of time. And Paul in the morning would be doing his work and we know that Paul was working in Ephesus based on what we'll come to find out in Acts 20 as Paul is speaking to the elders at Miletus. Right? He's speaking to them and he talks about how he was with them and he was working. His hands were at work. We know Paul was working in Ephesus. And so in the morning hours, he probably was doing his tent making, working with his leather. Right, And in the afternoon time, he would go to the school of Tyrannus and he would spend hours teaching the people that would come these things concerning the kingdom of God. What is it to live under the rule and reign of God? By the way, it's sort of interesting that that Paul is preaching and teaching the kingdom of God because 
When you open up the book of Acts, and you see right at the beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus, before he ascended, after he was raised, he spent 40 days on earth. And what was he doing? The Bible says in Acts 1, verse 3, that during those 40 days, he was speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If you go to the last verse of the book of Acts... We have bookends in this, in the book of Acts. In Acts 28, Paul is in Rome. We'll get to this next summer, Lord willing. He's going to take a trip to Rome. And he's going to get to Rome. He's going to be under house arrest. And one of the last things you see in in Acts 28, 30 and 31, he dwelt for two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. What was he doing? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Here he is in this school of Tyrannus. For two whole years, the Bible says, all of Asia heard the word of God, Jews and Greeks. And it's not unreasonable, church, right here at this particular point in time to assume that during this two-year segment of time, those churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3 are planted. Ephesus, right? He's in Ephesus. That's one of the churches in in, in Revelation 2 and 3. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Probably during this two-year window. He has helpers in Asia. Folks like Epaphras and folks like Trophimus and Tychicus and other followers who are helping. So, This is not simply put that that Paul himself was going throughout all Asia from it. But he had disciples serving alongside with him who no doubt were getting the word out over these two years. So we see in the text that Jesus, he does in fact change hearts. But sometimes when confronted with the name of Jesus, hearts are hardened. Do you know anyone with a heart who's hardened toward the Lord Jesus? You know anybody? Heart's hard toward Jesus. How do you handle hard hearts? You ever thought about that? How do you handle it? Let me give you a couple ways that I believe we could handle this. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to give you four P words. How to handle hard hearts. The first P word I want to give you is pearls. And you might know immediately what the scripture is I'm going to be turning to. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Nor cast your pearls before swine. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. I believe there came a point in time in the synagogue because of the opposition, because of the hard hearts. It was time to move out of the synagogue. The pearls, these wonderful pearls, the good news, the truth of the gospel was being trampled. Was being treated in a way that was profane. Blasphemy. So there's a sense where moving on may be in order. But what else? What else? Besides the pearls, I think we see prayer. Ought we not be in prayer for the hard heart? 
prayer. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who brings about the change. What about preach? Be ready in season, out of season. The word of God has the power to save. We think about a hard heart. The word of God, we understand. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The word of God is, is going to do the work. That's, that's the testimony of the scripture. It's the word of God that has the power to save. You and I don't save anybody. We don't, in ourselves, we don't save anybody. We can't, we can't somehow, way push a button and turn their heart. The Lord is the one who does that. What is our responsibility? Simply to preach the word and live the word before them. One last P I think it's important is, is persistence. We see Paul moving on out of the synagogue. But there's persistence here in the text. Paul doesn't just give up in light of these hard hearts. Some of us, maybe our tendency is just to give up. We just stop doing it. They don't like it. Well, I'll just stop doing it. I, I see persistence in the text. The Lord provides this, this lecture hall, Tyrannus, this lecture hall for teaching the word of God. He keeps on sowing the seed of the gospel, even though he encounters hard hearts of opposition. How do, you, how do you handle hard hearts of opposition? Does it just shut down everything for you? Or do you keep going? Don't allow hard hearts to shut down the truth of the gospel message. Don't allow hard hearts to close your mouth in regard to the truth of the gospel message. Press on. Be persistent. Pray. Preach and understand the principle of the pearls before the swine. Be discerning. Be wise. There's a third kind of heart in the text. Look at verse 11. God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And that's sort of an odd phrase in itself because isn't a miracle unusual? I tend to believe a miracle is unusual. This is an unusual miracle. So this must be like an especial miracle. An unusual miracle by the hands of Paul. What was he doing? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. The proverb writer in verse, chapter 11 verse 18 says that the wicked man does deceptive work. We've got deceptive hearts we're reading about here. Deceptive hearts. He who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Proverbs 12, 20 says, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But counselors of peace have joy. In Proverbs 14, 25, A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. Hey, you know what? Verses 11 and 12 here are probably proof texts for some of these folks you see on television. You know what I'm talking about, right? Who will send in the mail... To you, some kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know. They've got these little packets, I hear, of what they call miracle water. And you just drink this miracle water, and it's, I'm telling you, it is going to take care of all your problems. All you got to do. Or you might have heard the one that's on there that says, you know, if you just plant your $1,000 seed, the Lord is going to double that, and he's going to bless you in such a way. By the way, just put it on your credit card. It's okay. I think 11 and 12 are, are probably the, the, some of the verses they look at. Because here's what's going on. 
These, this, I always thought it was odd, the handkerchiefs and aprons. What's that all about? What's Paul carrying a hanky in his pocket for? What's he, what's he doing? Come on. And, but the handkerchief and the apron tie into who he is as a tent maker. The handkerchief was really uh, what we would call today, probably in our terminology, a headband. It was a sweat rag. And so as he's doing his work, remember he's doing leather working, working with tents. And so he's got a, a, a sweat rag and he's also got this apron. Okay? And so when the sweat rag or the apron, whenever that was coming in contact with other people, other people who had sick and other people who had evil spirits, the Bible says that the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Wow. So what was going on here? What happens as a result of this? Let's understand from the text that the deceptive heart flows out of the work of God. This is a work of God. God is doing this through Paul. The deception comes as an outflow of what God is doing. Someone is about to take what God is doing and try to manipulate it for their own purpose, for their own cause. I want you to watch what happens. And I hope we learn some lessons. There were a group of Jewish itinerant uh, traveling exorcists. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus. They're calling, in fact, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, we exorcise you. Not exorcise. We exorcise. The one who exorcises these demons out... The idea of, of an exorcist is one who employs a formula of conjuration for expelling demons. Okay? That's what an exorcist would do. And so they exorcise, listen, they exorcise by Jesus, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. What's that lead you to believe? These guys don't have a clue who Jesus is. But they like the benefits. They like what they see. They're wowed by what they see. And they like it. Seeing the power of God on display through the name of Jesus, these itinerant exorcists take it upon themselves. That's the text. Take it upon themselves. Listen, when you start taking things upon yourself, you're going to get yourself into trouble. That's what's going on. Remember Simon the sorcerer? Remember what happened when he saw the power of the Holy Spirit? What did he do? How how do I get my hands on that? Can I, can I, how much will it cost? How much will it cost that you give me that power? I want to be able to have that power. It's not how it works. Verse 14, we're introduced to these seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, which is interesting. In fact, these these seven sons were doing the same thing as what these Jewish itinerant priests were doing. Okay, there's two case studies, if you will. We got verse verse 13 and then verses 14, 15, and 16 is the second one. Sons of Sceva says a Jewish chief priest. 
There is no name in the annals of history of, of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. So it's possible that this family, this group, is connected somehow, some way to a Jewish chief priest. It's also possible that's a title they made up. It's possible. We don't know. But there's something not right here. And the text bears it out. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, those two words are, are, are slightly different in the original language. So, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? Think, this is the evil spirit speaking through this man who's possessed with the evil spirit. The evil spirit is speaking through the man and he says these things to those seven sons. Jesus I know, Paul I'm aware of, who are you? Then, the man in whom the evil spirit was, look at the three verbs here, leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed. I was talking to my wife about this particular scene. I said, you know what? This, this would have been a very ugly scene. The Bible says that these men fled out of the house naked. We're assuming they had clothes on to begin with. That's our assumption. Text says they're naked as they leave the house. And they're wounded, or some translations say bloodied. God is not mocked. Godliness, thinking of what Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6, godliness is not a means of gain. You see, a heart of deception is neither receptive nor hard in its entirety. (laughs) The deceptive heart likes the benefits of Jesus, but he likes his own self-interests more than he does Christ. He likes the idea of what Jesus has to offer, perhaps. He likes to be seen as a Jesus follower, but privately he likes to live how he wants to live. Or we could maybe put it this way in biblical terminology. He, he lives according to the flesh. And living according to the flesh, the Bible says, you cannot please God. While he may think he fools people, wearing masks wherever he goes, the deceptive heart, wearing masks, the deceptive heart manifests itself with a vast array, in fact, of masks. He lives his life on one big performance treadmill. Always feeling the need to play the part, he goes from day to day living a lie, or biblically speaking, exchanging the truth of God for the lie. God is not mocked. Church, the Bible says that you will reap what you sow. If you reap to the flesh, from the flesh you will inherit destruction. If you reap to the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap everlasting life. That's Galatians 6, 7 and 8. A deceptive heart will be a part of the throng, I believe, crying out 
Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus is going to say to that one who has a deceptive heart, I never, not at any point in time, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. To use the words of James, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Look at the last few verses of the text. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks living, dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Praise God. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. We have receptive hearts. We have hard hearts. We have deceptive hearts. And I believe here at the end we see repentant hearts. Repentant hearts. Proverbs 13, 13 says, He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Proverbs 14, 16, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. In Proverbs 28, 13, He who confesses or covers excuse me, his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Repenting is turning from sin, right? Turning from sin. Bringing to light Things previously kept in the dark. John 3, 18 to 21. To some of you, this may come across what we just read about the seven sons of Sceva. It may come across as a funny story. It wasn't treated as funny at the time. If you ask those seven sons of Sceva if it was funny, I don't know that that would be their response. And what about the man in whom the evil spirit remained? Is it funny? It's not. Is it funny that an evil spirit overpowers a man in such a way as to cause such havoc on these seven sons? And yet God uses the situation as he regularly does in scripture. He uses deceptive hearts to advance his own kingdom here. I want you to see this. It's through this particular time, we just read about in 11 through 16, where the name of Jesus is exalted and God's name is praised. So pretenders, beware. The name of the Lord is powerful. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Proverbs 18.10. The righteous run to it and are safe, right? It's a strong tower. So what happened, according to the text, as a result of the news of Sceva's sons? Two things here in particular. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord was magnified. How did the fear manifest itself among the people? And in what ways did the name of the Lord get magnified? There are two the text gives us that flow out of those questions. How are those, how is the fear and how is the name of the Lord, how is that manifested or expressed? The Bible tells us. First of all, it says those who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. 
over a period of time after the news is heard about what happened in that house with the evil spirit and these seven sons of Sceva. Both Jews and Greeks hear the message. They heard the story. Fear fell on them all. And they came over time, came confessing and telling their deeds. Confessing their own sins. Telling their deeds. In fact, it kind of goes on and says those who had been practicing magic. We're led to believe because we're in Ephesus. Remember, we're in Ephesus. What's the culture in Ephesus? It is not uncommon to practice magical arts in Ephesus. This was common. This is what the people did. I believe it's what many of them did even after they said yes to Jesus. They catch news of what happened with the seven sons of Sceva. They're coming and confessing and telling their deeds. They're bringing their magic books. They're called letters. They're little books. They would, these magic books. And they would have all these incantations, all these formulas, all these spells, all these. And they brought all these books together. And they burned them. Burned them in the sight of all the people. Fifty thousand pieces of silver, it says, or another translation speaks of a drachma. A drachma would have been a day's wage. So when you do the math, if I did my math correctly, that comes up to 137 years of wages for one person. That's a pretty good chunk of change. Burned in the fire. Ephesus was being transformed. Hearts were turning from sin, turning to the Lord. Repentant hearts. People were putting off the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And they were putting on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. They were starting to understand here in Ephesus that they were to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to expose them by God's grace as they bring together this collection of magic books together to burn, they realize that all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Some of those words are words Paul penned to the Ephesians. You know, for those of you that were there last night, we had a nice campfire, didn't we? It's a great fire. Put out some heat. I want you to picture, for those of you that were there, that blazing fire. Picture it in full blaze, because it was toned down significantly, wasn't it? I want you to imagine that fire in full blaze. And then I want you to ask yourself this morning, is there anything in my life that needs to go into that fire? Anything need to be purged out of my life? Is there something getting in the way between Jesus and me? Is there something that I've been holding on to for such a long time? And I thought it's okay to have it, but now I'm understanding as I see and as I hear your word that it's not okay. Is there something I need to get rid of? Is there something or someone stealing my allegiance to the Lord? Is there something tangible that I need to remove from my life and throw into that fire? 
has my heart been clinging to something or someone other than Jesus? Perhaps maybe in your own homes. Maybe you're able to have your own campfire. And maybe this is a great follow-up teaching. Dads, you can lead it. Put stuff in the fire that doesn't need to be there. What's the chaff that can be blown away? What's the chaff that can be gotten rid of? The people in Ephesus went through a heart change. They no longer pretended. They no longer gave half-hearted devotion to the Lord. The The people saw the power of God at work in Ephesus. And the people responded with repentant hearts. They were drawing near to this all-powerful God through Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to look at verse 20. We're about done. Hang in there. Stay awake. Eyes open. Listen to the word. We're almost there. So the word of the Lord, I love the New American Standard Version right here. I think it's got it the best. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. It was doing that over a period of time. The word of the Lord was growing mightily. It was prevailing. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The book of Acts, church, is is a historical narrative of Christ building his church. And when you see Paul enter into Thessalonica, when you see him enter into Berea, and he enters into Iconium and Lystra and all these places in Ephesus, he's doing much more than simply bringing the gospel message, which is big. He's fulfilling these very words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. And as you read this history book of Acts, Read it always with an eye on the expansive canvas of redemptive history. Christ said that he would build his church. He's promised that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The text right here in Acts 19 verse 20 says that the word of the Lord was prevailing in Ephesus. Is there a desire, church, in your own heart to see the word of the Lord prevail in you, in your home, in this church? I think nodding our heads in assent won't do it. A willing intellectual response must coincide with a willing heart response. A receptive heart is needed. Hard hearts need to understand and they need to be confronted with the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. For those of you who are hard-hearted or know people that are hard-hearted, know that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Proverbs 21, 30. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Proverbs 28, 5. God is a just God. You know, for those with deceptive hearts... Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Stop walking in the dark and pretending to be in the light. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandment is a liar and the truth is not in him. Walk in the light as he is in the light. As living stones being built together for a dwelling place of God. In the spirit, we need to remember that Christ is building his church. And listen, 
nothing is going to stop him. Nothing's going to stop him from building his church. The gates of Hades are not going to prevail against him. My friends, be diligent, Peter says. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Repent of your sins, turn to the Lord, and live in such a way that reflects a repentant heart. And as the church walks this way and is being built together in this manner, the word of the Lord will permeate this group. The picture of the word of the Lord growing mightily. Think think about that. The picture, the word of the Lord growing mightily. The word of the Lord prevailing in this place. I believe it's fitting to end with the prevailing word in verse 20. We serve a prevailing Savior. Amen? That's who we serve. The cross didn't kill him. He laid down his life. The grave couldn't hold him. He arose in victory. The empty tomb is like this flashing neon sign that says, Jesus, our prevailing Savior. Jesus changes everything. You know, Proverbs 15, 11 says that hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more are the hearts of the sons of men? The eternal reality of hell is set before the Lord. I have the keys of Hades and of death, says the Lord, Revelation 1, 18. Listen, why would you desire to live any longer in opposition to the Lord Jesus? He says that Hades shall not prevail against the church. But he goes even further and he backs up his point and he says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. He has been given the keys of heaven as well. (laughs) In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus, the Son. Every single heart here is before the Lord. He knows your heart. He knows your frame. He knows the days ordained for you. And he also desires that no one perish. If you take Proverbs 23, 26, and you apply that to something that Jesus might say today, he says, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. He calls you unto himself. He calls you to imitate him, to walk worthy of him from this point forward. As the holder of the keys of eternity, I imagine Jesus doing one of two things. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And graciously open the door of heaven to you, recognizing the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. Or he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. After which he will justly, justly open the door to Hades. Where you will spend eternity apart from him. Your heart dictates your words. Your heart determines your actions. Your heart follows your treasure. The holder of the keys of eternity desires to have your heart. Let's pray. Change our heart, Father.
reminded that you are the potter and we're the clay. We're reminded that you're the creator and we're the creation. Father, I pray that our hearts would be turned to you. Things that need to be thrown into that fire. I pray that we would do that. I pray that you would be and that you would, would capture our heart's attention. You would be our vision, our hope, the one we look to for all things. We thank you that you are a mighty king, that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. You are the holder of the keys of eternity. And it's through Jesus, through Jesus that we must come. It's before Jesus we stand. Father, I pray that each one here, as we stand before the Lord on that day, I pray there would be heard a well done, good and faithful servant. What a joy and delight to enter into his presence with fullness of joy. I pray there would be none here who are refused that entrance. But that all here who have heard the word of truth would fear you would praise your name, would desire to walk in your way. Repent, confess, desire to walk as you have walked through your son Jesus. Father, thank you for this powerful word. Thank you for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And I pray, Lord, that we've learned much through your word here in Acts 19. Open our eyes that we may continue to see wonderful things in this word of yours. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.